You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Imagine this. It's Taco Tuesday. You are utilizing one of God's gracious gifts to this 21st century, the Walmart app, where you are ordering your groceries online. You've got everything you need. I saw some, some hands ready. Amen. You've got your lettuce, your tomato, your cilantro. You've got your whatever your choice of meat or beans, if that's your, your vegetarian or vegan choice. And you've, you've scheduled that app or, or that delivery. And the bags get dropped off at your door. You bring them inside. You're excited. You're taking everything out. You're putting the cold products into the fridge. And you get to the last bag and you notice that there's something in there that you did not order. Something expensive like AirPods. What do you do? After you double check your receipt and make sure, I, I don't think I added that on there. No, no, no. You're, you're under $50 for this, this order. Man, do you keep these AirPods? Do you hide it and not tell anyone what happened? Then when someone sees you with AirPods, I didn't know you had AirPods. Yeah, they were a gift from the Lord. (laughs) Do you justify that Walmart and Apple are multi-billion dollar corporations, so they're not missing 150 bucks? Do you keep them and reason, this wasn't my mistake. That's on them. Whatever employee that was, that's their mistake. That's their problem. Or do you go the honest route and call up Walmart and say, I think you made a mistake. And I'll be in at this time to go ahead and return them to you guys. I won't ask for a show of hands to see what exactly you will do, but I will tell you this. This actually happened to a a family within our church within the last couple of weeks. And they chose the latter. They chose to return it, realizing that this was, yes, the honest thing to do out of love for the Lord, maybe love for their neighbor to say, hey, I, I, I hope that, that someone won't get in trouble for this, so let me go ahead and return it and hopefully help them out. Maybe realizing, hey, if the tables were turned and somehow my belongings got put in someone else's bag, then I would want it returned to me. I would want to treat my neighbor the way that I want to be treated. You know, the golden rule that Jesus said. And whatever your immediate thoughts were as I'm giving these these options in this scenario. I I, I think it interesting and timely that as we're learning about God's holiness and our call to be set apart to reflect his holiness, as we've just sang a song where we're saying, Lord, I want to be just like you. Maybe you remember the WWJD bracelets that regardless of how you feel about it, would challenge you to think, well, would Jesus have kept these AirPods? What would he have done? If I want to be just like you in every conversation, in every relationship, in every scenario, what would you do? Well, this morning, 
we're going to be focusing on this holiness, specifically holiness revealed as we continue in this series. And our main text is Leviticus chapter 16, where we look at verses 1 through 5, and then fast forward a little bit to verses 20 through 22, and then end with verses 29 through 31. And so I will turn there with you. I already had it marked, but if you have your paper Bible, go ahead and turn. If you don't and you are using the YouVersion Bible app, you can go ahead and, and click your, it's not a button, click your screen there or whatever it is that you need to do, even if it's just turning your attention to the screen to read along with us there. I'll be reading from the CSB version. In verse one, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of Aaron's sons, when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat on the ark or else he will die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Aaron is to enter the most holy place in this way with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments are to be on his body. He is to tie a linen sash around him and wrap his head with a linen turban. These are holy garments. He must bathe his body with water before he wears them. He is to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Then verse 20, when he has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he is to present the live male goat. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land and the man will release it there. And then verses 29 through 31. This is to be a permanent statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you are to practice self-denial and do no work, both the native and the alien who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be made clean from all your sins before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest for you, and you must practice self-denial. It is a permanent statute. So we got a lot of verses here, a lot to unpack, where it's very important that, that we realize the context, where we're at in the Bible. Maybe you don't typically read the Old Testament. Maybe you've gone through Leviticus and thought it was kind of boring. Maybe you didn't quite grasp exactly what was going on. But I'll tell you, we can't really appreciate the New Testament without the Old. And so particularly, Leviticus, this is uh, the, the third book of the Bible, the middle of the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And, and when we look at the Bible as one story, yes, it has many stories within, but as one story where God is revealing himself as he pursues his creation for an intimate relationship with them, when we get to Leviticus, we, we get to this place of realizing, man, there's been a lot of, of sin and rebellion and junk in the lives of humanity before. There's been sin after sin after sin, rebellion after rebellion, and we get to this place of realizing, well, this is a big problem because the God who created humanity and is pursuing relationship with them cannot be in the presence of sin. 
And so what Leviticus does is it it answers this question, how can a holy God have a relationship with a sinful people? God is blameless, but humanity is depraved. God is pure, but humanity is defiled. And I know that that some of these same verbiage and and, and words get thrown in conversation and and the easy temptation is to, to treat it as abstract thought. Yeah, of course humanity is wicked. We've seen atrocities of old and here in current day. We know that people are are wicked people, as in them, and fail to recognize that we're part of the same wicked humanity. That sure, maybe our sin looks different. Maybe we won't murder, but maybe we lie. Maybe we don't steal, but maybe we cheat. That we are in just the same circumstances of being depraved and defiled and God saying, I want to have a relationship with you, but you cannot make this happen on your own. Sin is not just the sinful things that we do, but it's the attitude of our hearts, our tendency to think that God is holding out on us. To think that that God is withholding his best, that he's lacking in love, or that he just flat out doesn't know what he's doing. That we know what's best for our lives. And this gap between us and God cannot be bridged by any of our efforts. And so it's within this, this understanding or this context that we get to Leviticus chapter 16, where the first verse starts off with a very, very peculiar setting. It said, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two of the sons of Aaron. That is very, very, like you could brush past that and move right along to verse two, but you'll be missing out on the crux of what's going on here. That this follows actually six chapters before when Aaron's sons actually died. And we'll turn back there in Leviticus chapter 10, and we'll just read verses one through three. There's plenty more to it, but we'll get the the grasp of, of what we need for this morning in verses one through three. It said, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, each took his own fire pan, put fire in it, placed incense on it, and presented unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them to do. Then fire came from the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has spoken. I will demonstrate my holiness to those who are near me. And I will reveal my glory before all the people. And Aaron remained silent. You have two brothers, Aaron's sons, who, mind you, are priests. And they're lifting unauthorized fire to the Lord, which the Lord had not commanded them to do. Now, again, with with a a small understanding or limited understanding, time spent in the Old Testament, you might look at this and say, what's the big deal here? They lifted a fire to the Lord. That that sounds like an offering of some sort, right? Like they were trying to worship God. Sure, they did it in a way that God did not tell them to do it, but isn't that a little bit better than them directly disobeying God by doing something that he told them not to do? Like, aren't there levels to this? Shouldn't God be, like, maybe not enthusiastically accepting of it, but shouldn't he just say, you tried? At least you're trying to to offer some worship to me. I want you to think about 
what this might look like in our lives. The things that we consider no big deal. The little white lies that we tend to tell. The exaggerations about the fishing trip. The 37-pound bass that you call. Or when you glorify your high school sports days and say, man, shoot. Look, we don't got any footage of it. But listen, my best game? Hey, listen. Wilt had nothing on me, man. 127. Think about that. What about our tendency to cheat and take advantage? Whether it's as, as teenagers cheating on tests or adults cheating on taxes or, or this, this lust that we have where we just say, well, I can look as long as I don't touch. This, that's no big deal. Or what about within relationships when our pride causes us to avoid accountability or avoid apology, correction, our tendency to gossip and talk behind someone's back and slander them. We could easily go and say, everybody does it. But at least I'm doing the big things. I'm here at church this morning. Or I'm watching online. I, I read my Bible every day. I pray. I, I give. I, I try to do all of the Christian things. So, so my list here, whatever you struggle with, that, that's no big deal. Don't certain sins carry heavier consequences? I shouldn't be stoned for that. Sure, legally. There's a difference between murdering someone and lying, yeah. But how do you actually determine sin that is no big deal versus sin that is a big deal? In what areas do we adopt less Christ-like character because of our tendency to go with the flow of what everyone else does around us? Like we're going with the flow of traffic trying to reason with an officer. Yeah, I mean, I, know, I saw the sign, but look at everybody else. See, I'd argue that we need to be aware of and honest about the sin that we'd like to suggest to God would be small because we're at risk of acting as our own gods who bend his definition of holiness and evaluate our sin based on the standards of the world and not of Jesus. Not of the God who is holy, holy, holy. As Pastor Brent referenced from Isaiah within the last couple of weeks saying, hey, yes, God is love, but the Bible doesn't put that emphasis on his love. It doesn't say God is love, 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 but it says he is holy, holy, holy. So if we suggest to God, hey, you don't have to really worry about that sin in particular or this struggle of mine, we're defaming his holiness. We're putting an asterisk where there shouldn't be one. See, perhaps these brothers did not think that God would mind that they took matters into their own hands. But really, the death of Aaron's sons vividly illustrates that no sin is small in the presence of a holy God. These were priests, and by their role and their calling, they were to function in a way that would have demonstrated holiness to the Israelites. They were to be representatives of God to the people and representatives of the people to God. They were to live holy as God was holy and put his holiness on display by the way that they lived their lives. They failed to do that by their disobedience, by them stepping outside and saying, well, yeah, I can approach God on my terms. I can do what I want. Yeah, sure, I'm lifting some praise, but I'm doing it the way I want, which is outside of the bounds of what God had instructed 
They failed to perform sacrifices to God on behalf of the people mediating for them, where a lot of commentaries actually suggest that what was, what was the issue here is that although this unauthorized fire sure might have come from a place of worship, and we don't exactly see their motives, but sure, it might have been categorized in worship at the best uh, perspective, but it was unattached to the offering that would have been given for the cleansing of their own sin. So they're just offering something to God saying, yeah, accept this. They lifted unholy fire and they were actually consumed by fire, which represents the holiness of God. In their efforts to be close to God, they ended up being consumed by his holiness because they chose something that was unholy themselves. See, all of our sin is failure to trust the goodness of God. But what does it look like when you fail? to trust in his goodness? Do you confess it in honest prayer to the Lord and share it with brothers and sisters in vulnerability, trusting that they will help you as iron sharpens iron, believing in the word of God saying, hey, support me, strengthen me? Or do you bury it and try to ignore it? See, how you respond is important because our sin is much worse than we think. Our sin is much worse than we think. The the word says that sin is crouching, waiting to devour us. And this all started with sin. We know that, that in Genesis, Adam and Eve ate the fruit and perhaps thought that God was not good enough to give them his best or to protect them from something they didn't need or weren't ready for. And seemingly small enough, a bite of fruit ended up leading to grave consequences for all of humanity. What about Abram and Sarah? Sarai, actually, before her name changed. When they took matters in their own hands to produce heirs for Abram, thinking, God, we're going to help you out. You promised us many years ago that Abraham would be the father of many nations, but you haven't given us this child yet. So so let's, let's try to help you out, Lord. Here's Hagar, the maidservant. Here, sleep with her, and then we can get this show on the road. And one seemingly small choice led to years upon years of oppression and generational feuds because they failed to trust that the God who made their bodies was not bound by their limitations. And here, Nadab and Abihu lift a fire that God had not told them to, perhaps thinking that their good intentions were good enough for God to accept, even if it led to their very disobedience. One small choice to operate in their wisdom and their own motivation instead of the obedience to what God had called them to. It cost them their life. I pray that we see that while we cannot always predict the consequences for our sin, we can't always see how it's going to affect the person next to us and the people around them and then the next generation. We can't always pinpoint the details, but we don't have to in order to be obedient to the Lord because he can overwhelm our hearts by his love so that we will respond with the desire to love him through our obedience. So I say again, a third time, in case you've put up brick walls, the first two, what small sin is present in your life that you treat as though it's no big deal and how do you respond to it? Do you hide like Adam and Eve attempting to keep God and others from seeing it? thinking that if, it, if I could just keep this even from my own mind, I'll feel better about myself. Do you laugh them off the way that Sarai did in the midst of her doubt of God's promise that she would bear a child in her old age? Do you minimize it 
Oh, man, yeah, 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 I know, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's change the subject. Do you reason and justify them like Nadab and Abihu and perhaps even insist that your position as a follower of Jesus gives you the right to use the common old adage, ask forgiveness, not permission. Just do it. See, the Bible shows many other times that seemingly small sin, disobedience has great consequences. It showed that there are no small sins against the holy God. That in Genesis 19, Lot's wife looked back and in that unbelief turned into a pillar of salt. That Moses struck a rock twice in Numbers chapter 20 and was forbidden from seeing the promised land. Uzzah touched the ark in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and he died. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, they lied about their real estate profits trying to deceive the Holy Spirit and it cost them their life. I need you to understand that, yes, I went at great lengths to give time after time after time that will demonstrate that there is no such thing as small sin because the holy God demands holiness amongst us. But this is not God nitpicking. This is not an angry God nagging, saying, not again. But it is the holy, holy, holy God who is seeking and pursuing an unholy people who continuously fail to grasp the weight of their sin. And that could be you and I, depending on how we respond this morning. See, sin only seems trivial to us when God's holiness seems trite. When God's holiness seems insignificant, boring, unimportant, unmemorable, old, that's when our sin, our sin will seem like it's no big deal. The problem is not that big or worthy enough to actually confess to God or to even acknowledge. And maybe that's why the Lord's Prayer calls us to pray in a manner that regularly honors his name as holy. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May we honor your name as holy. May we always remember your holiness, God, that you call us to. May it never be far from our mind and our hearts. See, we see the emphasis that the angels cried, holy, holy, holy is the Lord our God. Because when we see God as holy, we see that no sin is too small. And we will never fully understand the depths of God's holiness. We'll never understand the depths of God, period, or any attribute of his. His love, his grace, his mercy, and surely his holiness. But yet the more aware we are of his holiness, as we pick up this word, as we learn more of who he is because he reveals himself in his word, as we get more and more glimpses and greater perspective of his holiness, then what it does to us is it makes us more aware of our own sin. And that might sound like a bad thing. Men already feel bad enough about myself as it is. I already struggle with insecurity. Why do I want to be more aware of my sin? Well, I'll tell you, that's one way to look at it. But magnifying the holiness of God only leads to us feeling worse about ourselves when we separate God's holiness from his love and grace. When we look to God and say, yeah, you're perfect and I'm not. Oh, woe is me. Forgetting that this perfect God sent his only begotten son who lived the perfect life that we could not, died the death that we deserved, but rose again three days later, taking our place so that those who put their trust in him are forgiven and cleansed. 
when we hold this picture of God and bask in it, when we bathe in it, when we fix our eyes on him in this way, we don't feel worse about ourselves. We embrace more of his love that he's already lavished on us. We start to realize that although our sin is much worse than we think, God's grace is much greater than we think. We see this through the way the story continues in Leviticus 16. All this time has just been verse 1. But when we continue on with verse 2, we start to see all that God has done to pursue a sinful people. Verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he may not come whenever he wants into the holy place behind the curtain in front of the mercy seat or on the ark or else he would die because I appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. That alone is saying, Aaron, let's make sure that you don't try to approach and pursue me the way that your sons did on their own terms. Do it the way that I tell you to. Make sure that you are clean by utilizing the ways by which I've provided to make you clean, and then you can approach me. Verse 3, Aaron, you are to enter the most holy place in this way with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. You are to wear a holy linen tunic and linen undergarments to be on your body, and you are to tie a linen sash around you and wrap your head with a linen turban. And these are holy garments. And you must bathe your body to, ba- to take from the Israelite, or before you wear them, and you are to take from the Israelite community two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. See, the call to holiness and the provision to be made holy didn't just go to Aaron now. It extended because Aaron, yes, his sons were priests, but Aaron was the high priest. And what God provided within Leviticus chapter 16 was means for which all of Israel could be forgiven and made holy. This is known as the day of atonement where God's holiness continues on as he is, yes, putting up tight parameters to Aaron about how to approach him, but providing the means by which he can approach him, providing the means by which the people could put their trust in the Lord and be made holy. And part of this was through the sacrifice of animals where God could have said, stay away because you're not worthy and turn his back on us. He actually pursued them and said, Here's how. The priests sacrificed two goats on the Day of Atonement. And each goat illustrated a different aspect of God's grace. With what the high priest Aaron would do was he would choose the first goat and sacrifice it for the sins of the nation. But then the death of this goat was an innocent substitute representing the atoning sacrifice that Christ makes for believers today. This first goat pictures this atonement and the truth that our sins are covered by God. Our sins are covered by God. See, when we try to minimize our sin or ignore it or bury it or or try to keep it far from our hearts and mind that we not be discouraged by just how sinful we are, we're trying to cover our own sin. Much like Adam and Eve with fig leaves saying, okay, let me just try to walk a little straighter and feel a little better about myself. That's what we do. But the believer says, God, I'm going to trust you for this covering. I'm going to trust you to restore our broken relationship. I'm going to trust you to pay for my sins so that they no longer have a claim on me. If you have a wreck with someone, a car accident, and that someone's car 
they take their, their insurance to pay for the damages, then that person no longer has a claim on you. They no longer can say, you did this, you have to pay it up. And this is the same grace that God gives us, saying, you can't pay. You can't. You have to pay with your life. But because I desire relationship with you, and mind you, you got to be alive for that to happen, let me make payment for you. Then the second goat pictures the result of the atonement where we see what has become of our sins. They're gone forever. In verses 20 through 21, it says, when he has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he is to present the live male goat, the second one. Aaron will lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the Israelites' iniquities and rebellious acts, the big ones and the small ones, all their sins. He is to put them on the goat's head and send it away into the wilderness by the man appointed for the task. The goat will carry all their iniquities into a desolate land, and the man will release it there. You know what that means? If we had to summarize all of that? The sins are placed on the goat, and the goat is sent away never to return again. That means that God no longer connects those sins to the people. Because their sins were placed on the goat. The way that the psalmist says it is that God separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. That that goat is sent out and is considered the scapegoat. That's where the term comes from. That now because of those who, who, who put their faith and their trust in Christ Jesus, they have such intimacy with God and they are made so holy that he looks at them and remembers their sin no more which impacts the identity with which we view ourselves. That is no longer, oh man, I just got to bury it so I try not to think about it. But instead, Lord, let me run to you because I can't outrun this sin. I can't outrun its memories. I can't even outrun the consequences. I could try for as long as I can, but it will catch up to me because what's done in the dark will come out in the light. So Lord, let me run to you instead. Lord, take my sin But don't just put it on another goat because this is the Old Testament. And the beauty is is that in the New Testament, the goat, the lion and the lamb, Jesus Christ, he is that scapegoat. That he took our sin and because his body lay dead three days, but yet rose again, demonstrating the new creation that we rise as when we put our faith and our trust in him, that our sins are left buried with Christ. That's the symbol of baptism, that we go under the water, but we come out as new creation, made new. And it's not the water that's cleansing us. No, this is just an outward demonstration of what we believe has already happened when we first put our faith and trust in Jesus. The scapegoat is gone. I love how uh, Pastor Tony Evans, he, he talks about it in his commentary. He says, for believers in Jesus Christ... This ceremony offers strong encouragement. Since our sins too have been sent away, so to speak, we cannot lose our salvation. The scapegoat isn't coming back tomorrow to return to us all the sins we thought were gone. For if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Amen. What it shows is that Jesus is our high priest who solves the problem of our sin. 
Jesus is our high priest who solves the problem of our sin. Where usually all the priests participated in the sacrifices, but on the day of atonement in particular, only the high priest performed any work. He did all of the tasks that day. He lit the candles, the fires. He provided the incense and all the required offices he took upon himself. He was the only one to take the blood beyond the veil into the holy place. We're in this special place where God dwelt. Only the high priest could go there. And that's why God was saying, hey, don't go any type of way that you want to. Go the way that I'm prescribing to you. And now when you go, this is the intimacy that you get to experience. This is the intimacy that the rest of the people get to experience, knowing that they are made right with God because of what the high priest has done. But Aaron was human and sinful himself, where he had to be made clean. He had to bathe himself. He had to offer sacrifice for himself. But Jesus did not. Jesus is our high priest who provides our atonement, and only he can go in the most holy of places because he is, yes, fully man, but also fully God. And Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 tells us that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Get that. You have a firm and secure hope, an anchor for your soul, a hope forever because of not your ability to forget, not your ability to undermine, not your ability to justify, but because of who Jesus is. Can you fathom the enormity of this good news that Jesus will not fail you, that Jesus will not drop you out of his hand, that Jesus will not run out of grace for you, that his mercy will not cease, that he will not grow tired and say, again, you just did it five minutes ago. But that every time you run to him, in confession and repentance, saying, Jesus, I messed up. I'm so sorry. Lord, forgive me. He's saying, that's what I died for. That's what I died for. He will not grow tired. He will not grow weary. His tender embrace of you remains constant because he said himself in his earthly ministry that if you are weary and tired, come to me all you who are in need of rest, that he's gentle and lowly. He is ready to embrace you when you are humble enough to not try to hide your sin, but to confess it and put it upon him. See, we tend to picture Jesus the opposite. Well, really, we're, we're making this caricature of Jesus based on our human tendencies, our tendency to say, what are you doing, stupid? Get it together. And whether we're talking to somebody else or ourselves, we put it on Jesus thinking he's going to respond that way. But he's saying, I'm already victorious. The payment has already been made. The debt has already been settled. I just need you to embrace that truth. I need you to remember correctly that my sacrifice was enough for you. You don't have to add to it. 
You don't have to try to approach and pursue God according to your own means. Like Nadab and Abihu, you can use what I've prescribed for you. See, God's great holiness includes his great grace towards the humble who confess and repent of their sin. So we are better to run to him with our sin than to do anything else. But in order for us to embrace this, we must receive God's grace by faith. We must receive it by faith. See, God required the Israelites to respond to the events of the Day of Atonement by humbling themselves and doing no work. In the Old Testament, it was the the greatest Sabbath. We're saying, hey, do not work. Let the high priest do it for you. And now it says, Jesus has done for you, where now you can enter the greatest rest. You don't have to try to earn your salvation. You don't have to try to earn this forgiveness. Come face to face with the reality that there is nothing that you have done or can do to make you right with God. It was all the work that he has done for us. And we see that through the gospel. In Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift. It's not something you earn. His love lavished upon you by his decision, by his grace and mercy. See, our sin separates us from God, but because of Jesus' sacrifice, his conquering of sin and death is to be responded to with faith to receive his righteousness. But when we do, we need also to understand that holy living results from our experience of God's grace. That it all comes back around full circle. That when we perceive rightly the holiness of God, we won't treat our sin as too small or trivial. We'll run to him with it. And as we continue to learn more about God and more of his grace and experience his love and his mercy for us, as we learn his truth, true truth, even learning about how he desires for us to live our lives, then what we do is we respond to it and surrender. We adopt his ways. We cry the song we just sang, Lord, I want to be just like you, so I'm not going to go with the flow of traffic. I'm not going to do what the rest of the world says. I'm not going to treat my white little lies as white little lies. I'm going to pursue truth. I'm going to pursue honesty. I'm going to pursue my relationships according to the ways that Jesus, you handled relationships, forgiving those who have harmed me and wronged me. I'm going to choose to pursue honor and build Christ-like character and let it be shown through the way that I make my choices, what I say, what I do, and the motivations behind it. I'm going to trust you, Lord, that faithful is better. You made my life. You know how best I should live it. See, with a message like this, the really... The the only real response that God desires is repentance. That as best and as faithful as we might think we are, we're not perfect. So in a moment like this, we have opportunity to respond in repentance. That some of us might need to repent of this thought that somehow we can squeeze small sins through the crack and avoid God's detection. That maybe you can name some of those in a moment like this and confess them before the Lord. Repent of them. Run to him. 
Or maybe you don't have a relationship with Jesus at all. Maybe you might have been doing some of the Christian things, but you realize that your sin has not been placed on anyone. You've just been burying it. This is your opportunity to respond, to pray and ask God to make you holy as he is holy, to give you a greater desire to live according to his ways, a greater desire for his word so that you can learn more of who he is and what he wills of you. Respond as you need to in this moment and join me in prayer. Lord God, we exalt you, Lord. That's the beauty of of us singing songs in worship, Lord, that we're not reminding you of who you are, but we are reminding ourselves. God, that you are worthy of all the praise that we have to give, but not just with our lips, but with our lives. So, Lord, we repent. We repent of this thought that there are some things that you just don't care as much about. Some disobedience that's just not as important to you. Lord, you call us to holiness and we want to be like you. Make us that way. That some in this room or some watching online, Lord, they don't have a relationship with you. But with the faith that they have, they can cry out, God, I'm a sinner in need of a savior. And Jesus, you are he. Save me from my sin. Forgive me and make me new. And God, together, we all ask that you will burden us with your holiness. Burden us with the true and right perspective of who you are. Your holiness, yes, but your love as part of it. That we will not walk out of here insecure because of magnification of our sin, but we also won't walk out dull because of the minimization of it. But God, that we will magnify your holiness, your love, your grace, and your mercy as the word fulfilled, Lord Jesus. Be glorified and inhabit our praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church.